Good evening. I would like to report on the state of our war against the American people. We're mounting a sustained campaign to crack down on every American and every person of every faith and every nation and to bring them to justice. All missions are being executed according to plan, without warning or provocation. Americans are being swept up in an international dragnet. Thousands of FBI agents are on the trail of other citizens here and abroad. It has everything to do with hate and evil and murder and prejudice. America's strong. All right. I hope you appreciate that message from your overlord. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. I am your host, James Corbett, welcoming you to another episode of the Corbett Report. I am podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 22nd day of June 2007. While you were sleeping, the Canadian government has implemented a new federal no-fly list which will prevent passengers on the list from flying into, out of, or around Canada. The list has serious implications regarding your personal liberties, and to, to discuss those implications, today we're joined on the program by a special guest, Miss Connie Fogel of the Canadian Action Party. For the full interview, please go to my website, www.corbettreport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T report.com, and there you'll be able to find under the Interviews tab a link to the full interview in which we discuss the federal no-fly list, the North American Union, the Ron Paul campaign south of the border, how to support the Canadian Action Party, and other issues. We reached Miss Fogel from her home in Vancouver. Okay, I'm joined today by Miss Connie Fogel. Uh, Miss Fogel, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show. Oh, no problem. Um, could you start by just introducing yourself um, for the listeners at home and talking a little bit about the Canadian Action Party? Okay, well, um, I uh, am a lawyer by profession, although I'm no longer recently practicing because I'm devoting all my time to the work I'm doing politically. And uh, although I'm still formally a lawyer, I'm still a member of the bar and all that sort of thing in, in, uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia, um, I can still go into court, and I, I'm very familiar because of my background with uh, done a lot of work with constitutional proceedings and political um, matters constitutionally and uh, have spent uh, a lot of time in that area with uh, an organization called the Defense of Canadian Liberty Committee, which brought me to the Canadian Action Party. And um, I've been an activist and a, a, a politically concerned person all my life, even since I was a very young, young teenager. So I'm, I'm just kind of that kind of a. <laughs> I, I, it's just part of me to to be uh, very uh, curious and questioning and involved in uh, what's going on around our life and what rules us. Um, I was also a teacher. I taught school for a number of years before I became a lawyer, and uh, taught in various parts of Canada. Um, lived in Vancouver since 1970 been very involved in local politics and federal politics throughout all that time. Um, Canadian Action Party came into existence in uh, uh, 1997. 
I wasn't an original founder, I wasn't part of the original group, but for the very first election I did run, I was approached by people within the party because of my background. And at that time, the party was focusing almost totally on monetary reform, which is, of course, an absolute crucial something to understand about the creation and control of money. And this power is, is fundamental to understanding and, and having the, ca- the capability of controlling your destiny. Uh, so I was very, I had to learn a lot when they came to me. There's much I didn't know in that, in that field. I was, I was very active in the whole anti-globalist movement, had been for a number of years. Uh, and when the current, when the leader at that time agreed to, uh, let me deal with anti-globalist uh, issues at the same time as monetary reform issues, I said, fine, I, I, that, that suits me 100%. And that's how I got involved in the party. And, and since that time, the party has, um, um, really integrated the the uh, the whole connection between globalization and uh, power and control uh, through the through, through the money issue. So it's um, it's a party that's young. Um, it's a party that says something nobody else will say. That's why I'm here. And uh, it's a party that is the vehicle for the people if they ever decide in us to get on board to uh, really um, take back control of our democracy and our country. Okay, excellent. Well, it's a sovereignty, sovereignty party. Hmm. Okay, well, I hope to get a little bit more into the Canadian Action Party later. But for the moment, um, let's get into the press release that you released on May 24th about right. the no-fly list, which is going to right. be implemented in Canada on June 18th. Could right. you talk a little bit about the no-fly list? Or what is it? When is it well, going to take it's place? A, it's, it's, a, it's a list of names uh, of human beings that, in this case, would be uh, Canadians, that somebody, we don't know who exactly the somebody is, decides is uh, a risk, terrorist risk, and uh, therefore is not going to be permitted to get on a plane and fly in or out of Canada. And uh, that all flows from the event November, the event, the 9-11 event in uh, New York City in September 2001. Uh, that whole, the whole terrorist, anti-terrorist business, which is a, it's another whole thing we talk about fundamental understanding what's really what's going on. So the no-fly list is a mechanism um, that's, that's a particular instrument in the uh, globalists, in, in, in their direction of control and power over all of us, and are using the governments, the governments are participating with those globalists to, um, to, to, to create a, a state, really, a situation um, that is uh, undemocratic and uh, uh, unconstitutional, and getting away with it because it's, uh, it's they, they do it under the guise of of, uh, of uh, security and the necessity for the protection of the country, without telling us and really explaining what's going on. Now, the no-fly list in the United States has been in existence for a couple of years already, and the thing for people to understand is that everything that they do in the United States is going to happen in Canada. And the no-fly list is just an example of how it comes here a couple of years later. The reason everything is going to be done here that's done in the United States is, is uh, that our, under a liberal government, Prime Minister in 2005, Paul Martin, um, signed a smart border 
signed a security and prosperity partnership agreement. And going back before that to December of uh, 2001, Paul John Manley, who was the deputy prime minister at the time of Canada, liberal, uh, signed uh, a document called Smart Border Declaration um, with uh, the Tom Ridge, who was then the Homeland Security Chief in the United States, that basically promised to do this, to bring in a, a no-fly list. Mm. Okay, yeah. Can you just break down that document for us? What is the Smart Border Declaration? Could you just break that down for us? What is the Smart Border Declaration, and what did it state exactly in terms of creating a no-fly list? Oh, the Smart Border Declaration is uh, is a list of terms that uh, John Manley and Tom Ridge agreed would be the kinds of things that uh, would be a good thing to do and uh, to secure the borders to make, the, to make North America safe. Um, and I put all that in quotation marks. And it included uh, matters like um, integrating our borders, which they've done so much already. If you try to go across the line or you go fly in any airport, you see our, our security people all with this. If you look at the things on there, the, the labels on their shirts, they're all uh, joined with the U.S., um, they're, they promised to do things like bring in uh, identification papers where everything, all our information, all our personal information, our data, our, our eye prints, our fingerprints, our face prints um, will all be put in a, maybe on a, on a license, on a, on a driver's license or maybe on a passport. Um, exactly which way they're going to do it. We don't know yet in Canada. They're doing it with licenses and driver's licenses in the United States. Um, tracking devices on cars, those are all, th- these things are already happening. You, you, you go in certain highways in Ontario, for instance, like the big, the big one that was sold, was privatized, and in order to drive on that, um, there, are, there are machines that track the cars as they go through, and, can, and, and a, lot of, a lot of vehicles can't even get on there unless they've got this, an auto, that's, I forget what the exact device is, it's some kind of a transponder. The tracking devices, uh, the RFID, uh, the, the, the initials for it, um, identifier, uh, identifiers, again, tracking devices are uh, promised that they're going to be bringing in. Um, many, many promises are the terms that deal with um, uh, the airports, with uh, ferries, with, uh, with borders, with, uh, uh, with, with matters that deal with business trying to make things easier to go back and forth in terms of business. I don't, just don't happen to have the list in front of me, but people can go to our website, the Canadian Action Party website, www.canadianactionparty.ca, and uh, right on the home page there's an article that I wrote called The Metamorphosis and Sabotage of Canada. If they look in there, in that article, I uh, refer to the Smart Border Declaration and uh, lay out some of the terms of that. And as a matter of fact, if they even Google Smart Border Declaration, they might be able to bring it up. A lot of these are government documents that have been They've been, they remove them. They're not so easy to, to find. But all the information I've got in that article of mine have come from either our own government documents or U.S. Uh, government documents. And I mean, it, it, December 2001, Smart Border Declaration was signed by Tom, by John Manley and Tom Ridge. And it's a, it's a very, it's, 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 it's a formidable document that has. Um, um, in, that, that, that lays out as a groundwork for cementing with the first stage of the formal integration of Canada into the United States. Um, they don't call it that, of course, but the thing to understand about the whole unification process is everything is being done piecemeal, deliberately. So on its own, it can maybe look kind of good, 
like uh, someone say, well, gee, sure, as far as there's no fly list is concerned. Isn't it a good thing to have the, guy, the bad guys identify and we don't let them on planes? Well, no, it's not a good thing because how do you identify? How do you, who do you, how do you target this person? Who's, and you see the thing about the no-fly list, you can't, I can't find out, you can't find out if our name is on there. You're only going to find out if you're, when you go to the airport and you try to fly, and then the computer tells the airport people, you're on this list, and they don't let you on. And then you're not going to be allowed to, to, to fly. And in the States, experience already that's been happening there, I mean, children, babies have not ended up on the list because their name happened to be similar to some other name of somebody that somebody decided to define as being a potential problem. Uh, Ted Kennedy was on the list, and he had a hell of a time getting off. You see, these are, these are unelected, bureau, these are bureaucrats who are, who are operating the system, but the insidious thing is that we don't know how they, go, they choose the names, we don't know whether our name is going to get on there, and there's no easy process of getting off. What they do with all of this anti-terrorist stuff is say, well, you can go to the courts, you can do this and you can do that. But it's not so easy for an ordinary person to have to go through the courts. And anyway, why should we? I should stop and let you ask me another question. Transport Canada is setting up a new office to appeal the no-fly list, uh, inclusion on the no-fly list. But yes. I'm, I'm wondering about um, what, what you think that the role of that office is going to be and whether it's, it's going to, to be a legislative nightmare to get your name off the list. It's going to be a nightmare, I can tell you right now. I, as I said to you at the beginning, I, I'm a lawyer by a profession, and I was a practicing lawyer in the courts. I did a lot of work as an advocate. That's what I was. I was an advocate. I was the kind of lawyer that goes to court and fights for people. And, uh, and I know how difficult it is when you have to be put through any kind of a process to try to defend yourself or to justify yourself or to deal with an issue. It's cumbersome, it's expensive, and it's not something that we should need to do. We live in a country that prides itself uh, on being democratic. We live in a country that has built-in rights and freedom guaranteed in our charter. Uh, freedom of movement is a, is a fundamental right in this country. Um, and, and freedom to move from province to province is a fundamental right in this country. It's a, a fundamental violation of those rights to have a no-fly list to uh, be operative in this country that, will be, that, that, in effect, does violate that fundamental right of movement, freedom of movement. To be in a democracy, to be free, means you're fundamentally free to move. And, and it's just wrong. Absolutely wrong. Wrong, unacceptable, uh, inexcusable, and um, harmful to the interest of the ordinary citizen to have that kind of a of a practice functioning, uh, and it's no, it's not acceptable. And every citizen should just rise up and say, "I don't care what excuses or what justifications or what mechanisms you say you're going to put in place to get me up. Why should I have to after the fact?" somebody puts my name on there and then puts me to the expense and the difficulty of trying to get myself off, that's, again, a fundamental violation of, of the kind of law that we've had in this country. We're in this country, we have a tradition of law that says we are innocent until we're proven guilty. It's not that we have to prove our innocence, it's that the, the state has to prove our guilt. And this kind of a no-fly list basically says, you're guilty, we put you on the name, and if you want off, you have to prove you're innocent. That's wrong. 100% wrong. 100% fly in the face of, of centuries and centuries of legal 
precedent and practice and entitlement in this country. What do you say to the people who say that extra security at the expense of personal liberty is just the price we have to pay in the post-9-11 world? That extra security is uh, justified uh, at the expense of personal liberty, is that what you said? Yes. I don't accept that at all. Uh, that, uh, that, uh, that's an Orwellian uh, form of doublespeak. It's like, you know, there's a, one of these documentaries that was dealing with the 9-11 matter, and uh, there's a documentary, they were interviewing a, a woman from England, and poor thing, you know, she said, oh, yeah, I know, I have to give up my liberty in order to be free, you see. And so her mind has been all, all twisted, and that's, that's the kind of logic that's put out to all of, the, to all of us, that our minds are screwed up by the, by the arguments and the presentations that are put to us to, to justify uh, the, 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 the intrusion of our liberties and the destruction of our liberties. It's just not acceptable. Absolutely is not acceptable. I don't accept that double speak. I think it's, uh, uh, it's just outrageous that we are put into a position where we even have to be talking about this. This should be just, this should be just a no-brainer. You don't do that. Uh, you have to, and that's again speaks to the issue though of the whole 9/11 incident, um, and and the, the 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 amount of evidence that's coming out now that's so overwhelmingly compelling that that incident did not happen the way its the official story presents it, and yet it was that incident that is the that is uh, being used to to justify putting this no-fly list on us. It's just not right. For those of you interested in the rest of that interview, you can listen to the entire interview with Ms. Fogel on my website, CorbettReport.com, where we go into other topics including the Security and Prosperity Partnership of North America, the North American Union, the Ron Paul campaign in the United States, and other issues including how you can support the Canadian Action Party. You can also find a link to the Canadian Action Party on my website. Ms. Fogel went into some detail about the no-fly list and its implications, but perhaps a little bit more information about the legislative history of the Act would be um, appropriate at this point. The implementation of the no-fly list uh, in a, its legislative form it comes from the Public Safety Act of 2002. This was an act which received royal assent on the 6th of May 2004, Although it is called the Public Safety Act of 2002, it is something of a misnomer, obviously taking over two years to receive royal assent, because, of course, there were concerns throughout its legislative history regarding its uh, implications and its implementation. The bill actually began life as Bill C-42, which was given its first reading on the 22nd of November 2001, but again, almost three years later receiving royal assent because of numerous concerns that were raised with the Act. There is a legislative history of the Act available online, and again, you can find the links to all of the documents on my website, www.corbettreport.com. And one of the key concerns about the Act was the alteration of sections 4.81 and 4.82 of the Aeronautics Act. The legislative history available online goes on to detail those sections of the Act. Quote, Section 4.82 is another provision not contained in the current Act. And as a side note, that means the Aeronautics Act. Continuing, it authorizes the Commissioner of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP, the Director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, side note, who we remember from last episode, 
and the persons they designate to require certain passenger information set out in the proposed schedule to the Act from air carriers and operators of aviation reservation systems to be used and disclosed for transportation security purposes. National security investigations relating to terrorism, situations of immediate threat to the life or safety of a person, the enforcement of arrest warrants for offenses punishable by five years or more of imprisonment and that are specified in the regulations, and arrest warrants under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act and the Extradition Act. What this rather bland legislative wording seeks to conceal, of course, is the implications of such an act. If you're still questioning exactly the problem with this act, perhaps it's best left to a rather um, stunningly candid speech which George Rodwanski, the former Privacy Commissioner of Canada, gave at uh, a legislative committee meeting on Bill C-17, the Public Safety Act of 2002, which he attended on February 6, 2003 in Ottawa. And from that meeting, he says, quote, As I'm sure you know, in Canada, we are not required to identify ourselves to the police as we go about our normal law-abiding business. Unless we are being either arrested or carrying out a licensed activity such as driving, we are not even required to carry ID, let alone to identify ourselves to the police. When we fly these days, that's the exception. Even on a domestic flight, of course, you're required to provide your name and to show photo ID. When that information is made available to the police, as it will be to the RCMP under proposed section 4.82, the effect is exactly the same as if we were required to notify the police every time we travel so they can check whether we are wanted for any number of criminal code offenses. Now, as long as that's limited to anti-terrorism in this instance, to looking at whether a known or suspected terrorist is aboard a flight, I do not object from a privacy perspective. I question whether it will be particularly useful because, as September 11th showed, Individuals who commit terrorist acts are not necessarily known beforehand as terrorists, and people who are likely to be known as terrorists probably won't travel under their own identities. But if it's even a little bit helpful against terrorism, I do not object. But when you expand it to looking for people wanted on offenses that have nothing to do with terrorism or with aviation security, it's opening a very dangerous door. If we can, in effect, be forced to identify ourselves to the police so they can check if we're wanted on a warrant for any number of offenses when we board an airplane, why stop at air transportation? Once that door is open, once that principle is accepted, why not have the same thing when you take a train, a bus, when you rent a car? If that kind of self-identification is acceptable, then the principle at least would permit the police to stop us on the street to check if we're wanted for something, or to pull over cars and check the ID of anybody in the car just to see if they're wanted for any criminal code offense. So there, again, we have the former Privacy Commissioner of Canada, Mr. George Radwanski, detailing some of the very troubling aspects of this uh, no-fly list which could very quickly turn into a no-drive list, or a no-take-the-bus list, or a no-get-on-the-train list, or a no-rent-the-car list. Indeed, as Mr. Radwanski points out, the possibilities for government intervention in the daily lives of its citizens after uh, implementation of this no-fly list is pretty much endless. If you like to hear the phrase, May I see your papers, please, perhaps you will be a fan of this bill but I don't believe that there are that many people yet who are quite prepared to live in Nazi Germany, circa 1933. And I feel that this will be unacceptable to the Canadian public, and I can only hope that people will realize 
how much of an infringement of their personal liberty this is. But in case further warnings were needed, we have this article from the CanWest News Service from June 8, 2007, entitled, Privacy Czar Warns No-Fly List a Serious Incursion into Privacy Rights. And it's interesting to note the use of the word czar in that headline, which is becoming more common in the news these days to refer to people who are in charge of government agencies or in charge of government departments, including the new, quote, war czar, which is operating in the Bush administration. But regardless, we'll press along. Um, The new privacy commissioner, of course, is Jennifer Stoddart. And in the article, it says, quote, She remains concerned about the increasingly intrusive use of your identity in order to make decisions about you as an individual that are pretty drastic. This could turn into quite a nightmare for some ordinary citizens. Every time we go to the airport, do we expect to be challenged? That may be the new world. Stoddart says cases of mistaken identity are likely to occur, which means innocent travelers will experience the rather chilling fact of finding yourself singled out. Again, this is not some crazy conspiracy theorist talking. This is the current privacy commissioner of Canada, a government employee whose whose job is to look out for the rights of individual citizens and who herself has deep concerns about this no-fly list. Moving along, we have some stunning revelations again coming out of the Air India trial, which I spoke about in last week's episode. This time, the reports coming out concern uh, aviation security, which is part of the mandated scope of investigation of the Air India inquiry. And this revelation about the no-fly list comes from an article from the Canadian Press from June 14, 2007, entitled, Air Canada Fears No-Fly List Could Cause Unruly Situations. The article is ostensibly about unruly situations that might develop if somebody is singled out on the no-fly list and thus creates a scene at the airport, but buried within that rather fluffy news piece on the, in the tenth paragraph is some extremely important information. Quote, Uncertain is whether the airline can share the names on the Canadian list with authorities in other countries. For example, with police at an overseas airport if they're called to subdue an unruly passenger who's denied permission to board a Canada-bound flight. That's a point where where we're not sure, said Duguay. Our interpretation is that we would be allowed to pass on that information. Less clear is whether Air Canada or any other airline could share the entire no-fly list with foreign authorities. It was also acknowledged that foreign-based airlines could pass the list to their home governments with or without Canada's approval. That sparked concerns by Federal Privacy Commissioner Jennifer Stoddart, who has since come under pressure to elaborate on her views at the inquiry. End quote. So again, we have a stunning admission buried in the middle of that article that, in fact, your name, if you are to be put on this no-fly list, again, at the behest of um, RCMP and CSIS designated bureaucrats who you have never met and who you do not know, if your name is to appear on that list, then that information can and likely will be shared with authorities in foreign countries. This will quickly turn into a global no-fly list, and that information is backed up by a news story from, again, from CanWest, from June 7, 2007, entitled Canada-U.S. Need Shared No-Fly List from U.S. Homeland Security. And that article states, quote, A shared no-fly list should be created for Canada and the U.S. to track passengers who who pose a health risk to North America, U.S. Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff said on Wednesday. 
The need for a common list was highlighted by the case of an Atlanta man infected with drug-resistant tuberculosis who avoided detection by U.S. authorities by, by flying home from U Europe to Montreal, Chertoff said. We only have the ability to put people on watch lists coming into our country, Chertoff told CNN. It would have been good if we had a system that allowed us and the Canadians to have a common picture. So now we have the case of Andrew Speaker, uh, an Atlanta-area man who uh, traveled to Europe and then back to the United States despite having an extremely rare and extremely dangerous form of tuberculosis, which apparently was not extremely infectious, but pinpointed that there were weaknesses in the system for him to be flying around. Again, make of this story what you will, but I'll just mention that a report from the Los Angeles Times dated May 31st, 2007, uh, indicated that Mr. Speaker had a, an extremely rare form of TB known as XDR, and it says, quote, XDR-TB is extremely rare. Since 1993, there have been just 49 cases in the United States. End quote. 49 cases out of a population of almost 300 million people in the last 14 years. This man happens to come down with it, and it just so happens that just by coincidence, completely by coincidence, his father-in-law just happens to work for the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. And what, what department of the Center for Disease Control does he work in? Just so happens that he works in the Division of Tuberculosis Elimination. But... As his father said in that article, it's just a coincidence and that Mr. Speaker's contraction of the extremely rare TB virus had nothing to do with his work. And again, this just happens to work out for those people in government who are actively seeking to limit our basic personal freedoms. Or perhaps you still don't think that this is a serious issue. Perhaps you'd rather take the word of the Homeland Security Chief in the United States and believe that this is necessary for keeping us all safe from those nasty TB carriers. Well, perhaps you'd like to take this article into account. It comes from a CBS News article from June 10th, 2007, entitled Unlikely Terrorists on U.S. No-Fly List. And it says of the U.S. No-Fly List, in part, quote, in paper form, it is more than 540 pages long. Before 9-11, the government's list of suspected terrorists banned from air travel totaled just 16 names. Today, there are 44,000. And that doesn't include the people the government thinks should be pulled aside for additional security screening. There are another 75,000 people on that list. End quote. And as Ms. Fogel went on to point out, there are children on the list. Senator Ted Kennedy got on the list and, as she said, had a hell of a time getting off the list. This repression cannot be allowed to happen in Canada. We must resist this list. For my Canadian friends, we must resist this no-fly list in Canada. For my Australian friends, you must resist this list in Australia. For my Japanese friends, you must resist this list in Japan. My American friends should retroactively get on board and resist this list in America. It can be reversed. The time to resist is now. Get involved with the Canadian Action Party. If you are a Canadian citizen, please become a member. If you are an American citizen, please get behind Ron Paul, the only candidate speaking out on issues of personal liberty. If you are elsewhere around the world, do as Ms. Fogel and others have done and get behind the 9-11 Truth Movement. Exposing the criminals who run our government will stop them from implementing the legislation that will slowly erode our personal freedoms. That's all for this episode. Again, thank you for joining me for this episode of The Corbett Report. Stay tuned for next week's episode 5 of The Corbett Report.
like every day. I watch it and listen and call them all suckers. They wanted me about a summer or whatever. Picture me buying the scam. I said never. You in tune to a hard truth soldier spitting. I stay committed, gives a fuck to die, I lose commission. It's all a part of fighting devil state mind control. And all about the battle for your body, mind, and soul. And now I'm hoping you don't close your mind so they shape you. Don't forget they made us slaves, gave us AIDS, and raped us. Another push season mean another war for profit. All in secret so the public never seek to stop it. The Illuminati, triple six, all connected. Stole a vote, stay control the race, and take elections. It's the Skull and Bones Freemason Kill Committee. See the dragon getting shot. Shittier in every city. What would you do with you? What would you do with you? Who's the one with the most to gain? On 9-11, motherfuckers couldn't stand his name. Now even niggas waving flags like they lost their mind. Everybody got opinions, but don't know the time. Cause America's been took, it's plain to see. The oldest trick in the book is making enemy. A phony evil so the government can do its dirt. And take away your freedom, lock and load, beat and search. Ain't nothing changed but more colored people locked in prison. These pigs still beat us, but it seems we forgetting. But I remember 4 September how these devils do it. Fuck Giuliani, ask Diallo how he doing. We in the streets, holler jail to the thief. Follow fuck waving flags, bring these dragons to their knees. Oil, blood, money, make these killers ride cold. Suspicious suicide, people dying, never told. It's all a part of playing God, so you think we need them. While Ben Ashcroft, take away your rights to freedom. Bear witness to the sickness of these dictators. Hope you understand the time, brother, cause it's major. What would you do?